A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. But you might well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin, and you would, of course, be right, but so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we're going to series where we'll be hearing from those attending the party conferences. We start with Liberal Democrat MP Manira Wilson, who I had the privilege of chatting to here at Lib Dem Conference in Bournemouth. We'll hear about how she came to find Jesus, having been brought up in a Muslim home, and how she's seen God at work through her role as an MP. But before that, a few days ago, the Prime Minister's new climate change plans hit the headlines. Following leaked reports, he announced that the government will now proceed more slowly than planned with the UK strategy to reach net zero emissions by 2050. Let's establish some of the basics. Net zero, of course, is shorthand for the target to reduce the emission of greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide and methane, into the atmosphere until we are no longer adding to what is already there. This will include measures such as offsetting emissions, as well as capturing and storing them underground. The aim is to stop the global temperature rising beyond one and a half degrees by 2100, which is seen by scientists to be a tipping point beyond which we will see even more severe droughts, rainfall and heat waves across the planet. Measures that Britain has committed to putting in place include banning the sale of new petrol and diesel cars, replacing gas boilers with heat pumps, and a requirement on landlords to make their properties more energy efficient. The Prime Minister's reasoning is that the UK has progressed faster on meeting its targets than other nations, and therefore we can afford to slow down a bit because these changes are simply too expensive for households to implement within proposed timescales. In his speech, Rishi Sunak said, too often motivated by short-term thinking, politicians have taken the easy way out. You see, my concern, though, is that he's doing just that. The general election is on the horizon and the Conservatives are doing really badly in the polls. A number 10 insider was quoted as saying that the purpose of the speech was to create dividing lines with Labour. In other words, an attempt to appeal to those who voted for the Conservatives in 2019. Predictably, there was an explosion of reaction from all sides of the debate. The Express newspaper welcomed the implication that the nation won't and can't pay the net zero bill, whilst Gabby Hinsliff in The Guardian called it a shameful climb down. Environment groups were dismayed and businesses called for, in the words of Ford's chief executive, ambition, commitment and consistency as part of a clear long-term strategy. Others have been quick to ramp up the culture wars, either welcoming the move against the ideological eco-zealots, that's the Daily Mail, and the furious blob, that's from the Telegraph, or condemning the move as reckless and opportunistic, trashing what's left of Britain's reputation abroad, so said Polly Toynbee in The Guardian. Ian Duncan Smith tweeted that the government needs to be open about the cost of moving to net zero, and they recognise the need to get there without an ideology that places huge burdens on the taxpayer. But the reality is that tackling these issues are burdensome. And the further we push them into the future, the more costly they become. The challenge we face on climate change is monumental. The long-term costs will be seen in terms of loss of lives and livelihoods, homes and habitats. Ultimately, it is not about a zealous eco-ideology, but based on the reality of what we are already seeing. How can we apply Christian principles to this issue? Well, there are no easy answers. There are trade-offs and nuances that get lost in the political knockabout. We are commanded to care for God's creation, to act as stewards on his behalf, but we are also told not to place too many burdens on the poor. 
We can play our individual parts, but we elect governments and leaders to make decisions in the best interests of all, not simply based on the election cycle. It is at government and corporation levels that the change has to be driven. We cannot pretend the solutions are cheap or straightforward, but also we cannot hide behind ideology and slogans. So let's pray for real wisdom for our leaders and a reminder that every human being, whether they come from Newcastle or Nairobi or New Delhi, is made in the image of God. We cannot ignore the fact that those in the poorest parts of the world are the most affected by the choices that we make. Let's also pray for positive solutions, not just a litany of doom and gloom to engage those who do not yet see this as an important issue compared with the struggles of daily life or those who are simply overwhelmed by the enormity of the task. We know that God has chosen to engage with his creation and to remake the whole world from within. He calls us to be part of his plan. A mucky business with Tim Farron. Well, next to our guest, Manira Wilson, Member of Parliament for Twickenham. I think this is about my 63rd conference, but it's the first one we've ever done a mucky business at. So congratulations on being our first guest at live at Lib Dem conference. How are you? Yes, very well. Slightly croaky. I was DJing last night at Lib Dem disco and ripping up the dance floor till about half 12, quarter to one. So that gives our our listeners a little bit of a clue about what party conference might be like. So discos, yeah, MPs yeah. being DJs. Yeah, so we do lots of serious stuff as yes. well. And I made you know two speeches yesterday. Um, but also we get to have fun with our friends and colleagues and acquaintances. Well, we always start these interviews with the big stuff. Yeah. So um, you're a Christian. Tell me how mm-hmm. that happened. Uh, well, I grew up in uh, an Ismaili Muslim family um, and was practicing until I was about 16, 17. Um, and for some reason, you know, something was triggered and I started to lose my faith and questioning it and engaging with it less. By the time I went to university, I'd say I definitely believed in God, but didn't have a faith. I never, I've never, ever doubted the presence of God. Um, and... At university, um, I met and became friends with some Christians who started sharing their faith with me. Um, And at the same time, I was going through some various challenging things in my personal life, mainly at at home. Um, And I started exploring uh, with them. uh, And it's there was a big mission at Cambridge that year where I was given um, a copy of John's Gospel uh, in my kitchen and I read it and I was like well I've read all this stuff before there's nothing new here you know I did RE at school at GCSE and whatnot Um, but I started um, something similar to an alpha course type thing Mm. that they were running through one of the churches Um, and and then reading some more uh, and then various there were various difficult moments that happened and I didn't quite know how to react and the one night when one of these difficult moments was happening, I prayed and things got better. Mm. Um, and then there was another night when uh, similarly, uh, it was a difficult situation. And I just felt a real sense of the presence of God in, mm. in, in the room and sort of gave my life at that moment. And it was, uh, it wasn't straightforward after that. Um, obviously it's quite difficult coming from that background. Mm. Um, some very challenging discussions with family members mm. um, and, really hard it's one of the reasons actually uh, talking about it in this way to date I haven't done so publicly and Mm. um it's still quite hard to do because you know out of respect for my family because they are still practicing and um you know some my mom in particular really really struggles with that choice that I made which was what 20 more than 23 years ago 25 years ago now Mm. well we appreciate you doing so and 
Um, so it feels almost clunky to then just move on to politics, having yeah. shared that. And if we had more time, we'd go a lot more deep than we just have done. But at some point, politics became a, a feature mm. in your life. How did that happen? Well, I first got interested in politics when I studied A-level politics at school. Um, and I remember having this sort of passing thought, oh, it'd be really cool to be an MP one day. But um, particularly after I visited Parliament with my local MP. Um, but I just thought, oh, well, you know, that's well, how could somebody like me possibly ever become an MP and didn't think anything more of it and went off to university, um, wasn't involved in politics at that point. Um, and it was as a graduate when I was uh, in my graduate job, which I hated and was very bored in, um, and was a trainee tax consultant. Um, and uh, there were lots of different issues at the time um, that I was getting quite uh, exasperated with the then Labour government about. Mm. And I guess it was the Iraq war that tipped me over the edge. And actually it was um, one of my friends at church at the time who said to me, Monia, stop shouting at the television and get off your backside and go do something about it. And that's when I joined the Lib Dems and got involved. And you ended up on a local council where was that yeah well so that no, that was when i was living in north london where at the time there wasn't a very active party it was one of those classic moments i turned up to a local party meeting and ended up on the executive Faithful. by the end of the meeting um and but it was i was really grappling with my career at that time and i was bored demotivated mm. praying for some opportunities and started applying for lib dem jobs and mm. actually ended up um, with no experience getting a job for to go and run a campaign in one of the most marginal Liberal Democrat seats in the country in the 2005 election in Guildford. Yeah. So that's where I cut my campaigning teeth. And then by the time that job finished, I'd met my now husband who got a job working for Twickenham and Richmond Liberal Democrats, which is why I moved when I came back to London, I moved to Twickenham because the Lib Dems were strong there. And then I thought, well, I'll, it'd be lovely to try and stand for council mm. and get a bit of experience of elected office that way and represent my local community. So I was a councillor in West Twickenham in the London Borough of Richmond, 2006 to 2010. Marvellous. So let's fast forward now to yeah. 2019. Yeah. There's a general election. Uh, Vince Cable had been the MP on and off, but mostly on uh, yeah. since 1997, yeah. regained the seat yeah. in 17, having lost it in 15. At what point did he announce his intention to retire? And then were you immediately of the view, this is my moment? Um, yeah. So it was a middle of the summer holiday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think my family would thank me for the fact that our entire summer holiday was then taken over <laughs> with me preparing my selection campaign. Yeah. Um I'd had a bit of a heads up. I mean, with all the political turmoil, obviously this was at the height of the Brexit years and May being ousted as PM and so on. So it looked like a general election was on the cards. Mm. Uh, and having been in and around the Twickenham area and been elected and a very active member and having good relationship with Vince, I'd, I'd, I'd had a quiet chat with him. So I knew there was a possibility. And then it eventually all came about in the August. Um, and because we were expecting an election very, very soon, I was selected uh, in the September and we had an election in December. So it was it was very, very whirlwind. Yeah. Um, and frankly, yeah, it was a, an amazing and divine sort of timing for me because I don't, if it hadn't been that quick, mm. um, given that I was in a pretty high flying corporate job by this point, I had two very young, young yeah, children. Yeah. They were one in five at yeah. the time. Um, I couldn't have taken on being a parliamentary candidate for a, a, a top seat um, for a period of time. Yeah. I could only do it for a few months. So it, it worked out very well for me personally in terms of the timing. Brilliant. Um you get elected in 2019. Yeah. It's great for you. Yeah. 
I, I scraped back as well. Good for me. Well done, Tim. Only 11 of us. We'd hope for a lot I better. Know, I Brexit know, then happened. I Boris know. Johnson majority. And then within weeks, we were into the plague. So what, what was it like being a new MP oh, against the backdrop of all of that? I can't. I struggle to find the adjectives, Tim, because (laughs) often when people ask me about it, that's exactly what I say. There are no adjectives to describe how utterly overwhelming it was. Um, As you say, I'd only been an MP maybe three months. um, And as you did, as we all did at a local level in the constituency, Mm. we were all overwhelmed with casework and inquiries because Mm. people were terrified or, you know, so many loopholes in the support schemes and, and all the rules and so on. So we were overwhelmed at a local level. And then here's me, you know, new BMP, having to take challenge the health secretary, one Matt Hancock, yes. um, and thrown into having to do national media uh, very, very regularly, sometimes speaking straight after those big press conferences mm-hmm. on COVID mm-hmm. um, on the BBC News Channel and having to go toe-to-toe with Hancock in the House of Commons every other day on the latest statement mm-hmm. and question. Um it was overwhelming. And I think before the first lockdown, when there was a lot of controversy that we weren't locking down soon, even though I was just a Lib Dem health spokesperson and in reality had no influence on the situation, I felt such a huge burden of mm. responsibility. In fact, our York conference, you might remember the spring conference was cancelled yes, uh, because of COVID, uh, but before lockdown. And I was in York with my family because we had accommodation booked and on conference calls. And I just couldn't sleep because I was just like, God, you put me in this position. I don't know what to do. I, I'm really new to this. I don't have the advisors. I don't know what I should be saying. Yeah. Um, and I felt a real, yeah, real sense of responsibility. And particularly when we had those big votes on you know various measures and lockdowns um i remember almost being in tears with the november lockdown because i felt that the government had really squandered the gains we'd made yeah. through the first big yeah. lockdown and i felt morally very conflicted because i wanted to protect people but equally i felt we shouldn't have to be in that position it was one of the hardest votes i've had to do a mucky business with tim farron we're talking to Manira Wilson, Liberal Democrat Education Spokesperson and Member of Parliament for Twickenham. So you are Education Spokesperson now. Yeah. You were our Health Spokesperson mm-hmm. during the pandemic. Yeah. And um, But education clearly massively matters to you. Yeah. You spoke um, here at conference yesterday. Um, we Obviously, we just do as we're told by Ed Davey. That's how it works, <laughs> isn't it? I'm the, I'm the Farming and Rural Affairs and Environment Spokesperson. But we do get a choice to say yes it's or handy not. handy when you represent the next district. Lots, lots, lots of farms. Not so much Twickenham. <laughs> yeah, but... But but nevertheless, it's a brief that you clearly relish. I love um, it. So tell me yeah, why. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the brief that I would always want. I always wanted to do and always want to do. And you know, uh, in my dream world, I would be education secretary one there day. There we are. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I'm really passionate about it. Partly, and I said this in my keynote speech yesterday. It, education and the importance of education was absolutely drummed and instilled into me at a very young age by my particularly by my dad but both my parents uh, as is often the case particularly for children of immigrants who you know want to see their children make a better life for themselves than they were able to mm-hmm. um but also if i if we think about it from a faith perspective you know the bible does talk about children quite a lot mm-hmm. um and actually how Jesus puts children on a pedestal quite often um, and asks people not to hinder children coming to him. And we're asked as well to look after the widows and the orphans. And I feel really strongly that, you know, we children are a blank canvas when they're born. 
And all of us have, you know, something God-given that's so special in us. Um, and unfortunately, circumstances and the environment means that for so many that that is never drawn out and mm. and it's never allowed to flourish. Um, and I feel very strongly that, you know, we it's our mission as liberals yeah. to make sure that we do everything that we can to enable every person to really achieve their potential, um, because that's what, what that's what we're about yeah. as liberals. Right. It's yeah. about it's not just about education. It's about all the other support that goes in uh, around children, particularly those who've been through trauma and making sure that they're taken care of mm. and given the very best start in life which kind of leads me to ask you about a case which I know is really, really close to you. So you're a constituency member of parliament yeah. as well as spokesperson for the Liberal Democrats on education. There's a particular case I witnessed you pursuing doggedly over months relating to a, a family in Afghanistan. Tell me about yeah. it. Um, so I have a constituent whose brother was shot dead by the Taliban um, uh, about six months after the fall of Kabul. Um, he he was a British citizen, dual national, and he had five children, uh, four girls and a boy um, and an Afghan wife. Um, and obviously he was shot dead. He was targeted by the Taliban. They were at huge risk. They went into hiding. Um, we f- fought to make sure that the children got British passports because they were eligible because their father was a British citizen. Um, and so then my next mission was to get British children out of Afghanistan, particularly we've got four girls who couldn't access education um, and all were at risk. And I felt I met barrier after barrier mm. from the Home Office, um, which I fought. And finally, we got after 18 months, we got a little opening. The foreign office didn't help us out. My constituent went, took his life in his own hands, went to Afghanistan to try and help get them out via first via Pakistan to get a visa. Anyway, as as I was knocking on doors to try and get the foreign office to make sure that they got the visa when he was there and got them home safely, I was out and about and I saw this. I saw this sign as I was walking to speak at a conference in Liverpool um, and the sign had the family surname, which I'm not going to say to protect their sure. safety because there's still a family member sure. left behind. And as I was walking, I really felt God say to me, Munira, stop trying to do this all in your own strength. I've got I've got them. You've done everything you can. This is not for your own glory. Mm. This is not about you. Mm. I care about them a lot more than you. <laughs> and about half an hour later... I got a message from my constituency caseworker to say they'd got the visa in Pakistan. Then we didn't hear anything from them. And then about 10 days later, we got a call saying they're at Heathrow. Mm. Um, It was just, it was one of those moments where I just was like, wow. (laughs) Like I fought and fought and fought. And and the previous Sunday I'd been crying in church because I'd heard that he couldn't get a visa at the Pakistan embassy in Kabul, which is why he then had to take his life into his own hands and take the mother to Islamabad. And I was just like, God, what are you doing? Mm. And then after that, we I had this moment, as I say, when I just saw their name up on a board and very clearly spoken to in that way. And he did the rest. And it's just a lesson that I have to keep learning throughout my life that I always try and do things in my own strength. I'm very, I'm very determined. I work incredibly hard and I'm all about achievement. And I have to keep learning that lesson that actually God's in charge and he does, he does the hardest bit. 
listeners, we're welling up here in Bournemouth. Literally, <laughs> there's no telly, but you have to trust us. Um, Manira, we come to the end of our time. There's loads more I could ask you, but it's been a real blessing to have you with us. Thank you very much for everything you do for your community, for Lib Dems, and for your public witness. Have a great day. Thank you. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It could be how an aspect of this world impacts on us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. I'd love to hear from you and to attempt an answer. So please drop me an email to farrow.premier.org.uk. Now, this week, John's been untouched and he asks, what do you think Christian leaders in churches can learn from Christian leaders in politics? And what can Christian leaders in politics learn from Christian leaders in churches? There's a whole essay there, John, that I could uh, deploy to answer that. So let's try and keep it simple and, and make some assumptions. Maybe the thing that Christian leaders in churches might struggle with the most is that they are less engaged with the world than Christian leaders in politics. And maybe the problem that Christian leaders in uh, politics struggle with is that we are maybe sometimes too much involved in the world and so i think christian leaders in churches can therefore learn something from christian leaders in politics about how we engage with those people who are not christians and how we understand the language um, whilst not compromising in our faith and what i think christian leaders in politics need to do is keep listening to good teachers good christian teachers to be in good christian fellowship as i often say the two great challenges that face christians when it comes to politics is that we either blend in or we uh, hide away if you blend in you lose your saltiness and are not faithful if you hide away you'll have no impact upon the world and all of us need to learn from each other as how we make sure we avoid those two traps. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this week's show. Let's end together in prayer. Well, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this time with you, and we thank you for Mayor Wilson. And the thing that she really drew our attention to, which is that it's so easy to rest in our own strength, uh, and so uh, easy often to forget that we need to rest in yours. I pray for all those attending party conferences, whether they are councillors, regular members, members of parliament, wannabe members of parliament, that they would recognise that, that they would understand that resting in your strength is the key to um, uh, to being able to access a, a wonderful relationship with you, being humble uh, to others and to you, Lord. Um, and we just pray for the party conference season as it rolls on, that you bless the Christian organisations, Christians on the left, Lib Dem Christian Forum and the Conservative uh, Christian Fellowship, that they would be strong witnesses to your truth in the settings that you have put them. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premier.plus forward slash A Mucky Business. Thanks ever so much for being with us. Thank you.